0: Welcome to Bunker Gold, where we pick a throwback episode from our podcast time capsule for you to listen to. In this episode from November 2022, Dorian Linsky spoke with Labour MP and Shadow Cabinet Minister Lisa Nandy about her book, All In, How We Build a Country That Works. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is the Shadow Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities. She's been MP for Wigan since 2010 and ran for the Labour leadership in 2019. She also co-founded the think tank Centre for Towns. Now she's written a book called All In, How to Build a Country That Works. Lisa Nandy, thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great.
0: Well, writing a book, I, I know it's hard enough, even if you're not in the shadow cabinet at the same time. Um, and so you don't you do not do it unless you feel really driven to. Um, what was the compulsion here?
1: It really came out of a really awful episode in Wigan when our football club, Wigan Athletic, was put into administration by new owners just a few hours after taking ownership of the club. And it was an extraordinary scenario but actually not that extraordinary in the end because it was uh, one of those very many experiences that football fans have had up and down the country in places like Bury where the system is set up for everybody except for the fans, the people at the centre of the club. We had rights on paper that were meaningless in practice because we were told we could buy it, but we didn't have £16 million. All the money, all the power, all the resources was held by the wrong people who wanted to extract and take and destroy, while those who had skin in the game, who'd built our football club, who'd preserved it, who'd protected it, and who knew its value, came last – and I came out of that experience in a much happier place. We saved the football club, We've mm. got new owners, and the club is doing really well. But it was such a slog. And it made me think, these incredible people who came together in our community to save our club, these are the people who are building and protecting everything of value in our country. And imagine what they could do if they'd had a government that matched that level of ambition and handed them the tools, the resources, the powers to be able to do it. And that's really where the book came from. It's the story of these incredible people in every part of Britain who are building our country and how if we made just some small changes to the way that we do things, how Britain could be so much better.
0: I noticed there there must have been a very late edit to acknowledge the, uh, the end of the Liz Truss Weeks.
1: Oh, it was a nightmare. I started <laughs> writing it when Boris Johnson had just won a thumping great majority. I finished writing it as he was being turfed out of office. We updated it to reflect the fact that Liz Truss was Prime Minister and by the time the edits had been accepted, she wasn't anymore. So it didn't make my life easy, but I suppose that's no, not compared to what they've done to the country, so... Well, your preface is called
0: Britain Isn't Working, um, and I spoke to someone from a focus group um, organisation recently who called it, referred to sort of shambles Britain. Do you think that that pervasive sense of dysfunction has become the biggest issue in politics right now, because because people feeling it every day?
1: I think everywhere you go, there's just this feeling that everything is falling apart. People are pretty angry, and you can see that they're pretty angry, Um, But I don't think that anger comes from a negative place. I think it comes from a place of ambition, that people know that this country could be better, but they're very angry that for a long time they've been saying things aren't working and the political system just hasn't responded. We've had 14 years since the global financial crash we've got an economy where most people work harder than I can ever remember but can't make ends meet at the end of the week or the month and when they've sounded the alarm over and over again we just haven't responded I think it's high time that we responded not least because um, we're going into a winter that's going to be the hardest winter that most people can imagine and people need hope there's got to be hope on the horizon and and I think there is I think that, that that hope exists in every part of Britain in every community, and with a government that understood that quiet patriotism that is at work, that Mm. spurs people on to build and to try and to do more and to be more creative. If we understood that and we harnessed it, we could be a far better country.
0: Yeah, that phrase quiet patriotism uh, really stood out because Labour often ties itself in knots over patriotism with maybe, you could say, Corbynism at one end and and blue Labour on the other. Um, What is this specific? patriotism you're talking about, that that perhaps avoids those sort of um, pitfalls?
1: I mean, you know, you see a lot of this, don't you, in politics with politicians sort of waving flags and, um, you know, brandishing pints of real ale to try and prove that they're British and authentic and patriotic. But, you know, all the while doing things like leaving our veterans on the street and refusing to feed our kids during a pandemic, that doesn't strike me as particularly standing up for the interests of the British people. I mean something really different. I mean, this sense that we're by the strength of our common endeavour, we do more than we can do alone. And that's a force that I think we should have always understood on the left because that is the essence of who we are, whether it's, it inspires you to go off and fight for your country or whether it inspires you to run a food bank in your local community. Um, that that's how things get better by coming together and standing together and working together and I just see that everywhere at work in Britain there are lots of stories in the book of the people that I've met who've made things better even when things seemed completely hopeless and I know that they could do more but they need a government that backs them. Because
0: um, the word socialism does appear in the book but not that often is that I mean, people always argue about kind of, you know, what what socialism is and what counts and there's endless policing of the boundaries there. Is that how you would describe the project that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very strong socialist theme that runs through the book, not just that we're uh, what Aristotle called political animals, deeply social and with a need to belong and to uh, be part of a tribe and work as a team, um, but also that You know, there's there's a strong sense of that we've lost that common ownership that was once our inheritance, our right. A lot has been taken from us over the last decade, including the fact that you know many parts of the country, including mine in Wigan, within living memory, we powered the world. Um, We built this country's wealth and influence. We were the engine of British industry through the work that we did in the mines and the mills and the railways. And that sense of contribution has been taken from us. So when you hear people like Liz Truss talking about growing the pie so that more can be redistributed, she's essentially talking about writing off most people in most parts of the country as being able to contribute to the future of this country. Mm. Instead, you can have whatever crumbs are left when other people have gone about driving forward Britain. That just strikes me as, as such a pitiful way to think about the future of the country we could do far better than that in fact the only way to build a country that works is to hand people the powers the tools the resources that they need so that every person in every part of britain can make a contribution again
0: I spoke to some English mayors earlier this year, and people like Andy Burnham and Tracy Brobin were so much happier as mayors than they were as MPs because they said they could get things done, um, yeah. particularly in, in regions that meant a lot to them. And as a champion of devolved government, have, have you ever considered that path or, or wondered whether being an MP um, was the sort of best way to achieve what you want to achieve?
1: Yeah, I did, actually. I've never been asked that question. But when when the idea of the um, the the Greater Manchester devolution deal was being floated and George Osborne was insistent that we were going to have a mayor imposed on us. I briefly think that would be, you know, you could, do, you could do some incredible things with that role. As Andy Burnham has shown, I was um, the Shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change at the time and it was very frustrating to be standing with a front row seat to the destruction of our growing solar industry and onshore wind, through the changes that the Conservatives were making. Meanwhile, I'd been at COP um, in Paris that year, the Great Climate Conference, and Mm. seen that it wasn't the great world leaders, you know, and Obamas, who were actually leading the fight against climate change. It was the mayors of major cities around the world. So I think there is a lot to be said for the very practical side of being either a metro mayor or a council leader and getting things done in your place Uh, And one of the problems that we've had in this country is that it's traditionally been seen as a sort of secondary job or a stepping stone to Parliament. But actually, if we want to power this country from the ground up, from every part of Britain, we're going to need those brilliant local leaders to step forward. Part of the argument in the book is that we've got this absurd situation in one of the most centralised countries in the world, where the national state tries to micromanage millions of decisions that are nothing to do with it and doesn't actually do its own job, which is to clear the pitch, so that people who are trying to come in and extract and take from us don't don't get away with it, and that people who are in it for the long haul and have skin in the game can actually get on and build.
0: And your current job, like much of the book, ties in with the work of, of Centre for Towns, and I suppose what you're best known for. Um, you were shadow uh, Foreign Secretary for a while, that sort of feeds into it as well, which is perhaps not you know, the first job that people would have would have thought of. What did you what did that teach you?
1: I mean, it was a it was a bit of a surprise to be honest when it came. <laughs> offered me the job, not least because we stood against each other in the leadership contest, and I thought there was a very strong possibility I was going to be put in a cupboard for the next four years. Um, But (laughs) I tell you that it was like the missing bit of the jigsaw for me, because what I came to understand very quickly doing that job and spending time with leaders all over the world grappling with similar issues was that the one place where the national government can and should make an enormous contribution to improving the lives of people in our country is at global level, you know whether you're sitting in Halifax with a, a cafe owner who now has annual flooding that is destroying her business because of climate change, or whether you've got you know an elderly constituent who has been defrauded out of his life saving by global criminal gangs, or whether you've got a football club like Wigan Athletic that is plunged into administration because of a, a global system that allows people to use our football clubs as playthings or to launder money or reputations, those things can only be solved at global level, but they have a major, major impact on people across Britain. If you don't, the consequences can be really catastrophic. The government should be focusing on doing that job at global level, working with like-minded governments in order to affect real change for the people that it represents.
0: So you're appointed in your current job uh, to shadow Michael Gove, uh, who is back, but the project seems to be um, very shaky. Is there anything left to shadow?
1: I think that the levelling up agenda was a serious attempt to, by him at least, to try to get every part of Britain working. But it was soundly killed off by two things. One was the Treasury that fundamentally does not believe that most parts of Britain have a contribution to make. And so when the levelling up white paper was launched earlier this year, there was virtually no funding attached to it, more money written off to fraudsters than handed to the whole of the north of England. Um, But the second thing that really I think he's he's found is there is a large section of the Conservative Party that believes that it's fundamentally unconservative for the state to step in and help to build. And for those two reasons... I think levelling up is, is no longer a central part of the government's agenda, evidenced by the fact that last week in the budget, the Chancellor handed the department for levelling up the deepest cuts of any single government department.
0: But I mean, you're, what you're arguing for here is, is, perhaps not using that phrase which came from the Conservatives, but it, it essentially is levelling up. Like, what if you took that idea seriously and, and, and addressed what you call geographical uh, inequality?
1: Yeah, and the, and bringing the importance of place back into focus. It brings people together from different walks of life in a way that we haven't really seen in Britain over the last decade. It's been a very dark, divisive mm. decade. We found multiple ways to divide ourselves from one another. But those metro mayors and great council leaders across the country have been able to do things differently and actually bring people together around a shared agenda because this is their community and they care about it and they're prepared to step up and invest in it um, but you know if, you, if what you're asking me really is do I subscribe to that way of seeing things I absolutely do yeah. and it was a tragedy for me that it was Boris Johnson who got there first and not my own party because I think if we'd recognised this more quickly we'd be in government by now with the chance to actually do something about it And growing the economy from the ground up, not with one national growth plan, but by drawing on the strengths and the assets and the potential in different communities is the only way out of our current crisis. I mean, you're not going to power this country through wind turbines in the city of London, but you Mm. would invest in wind in Grimsby and hydrogen in Ellesmere Port. And there is huge potential now to rebuild this country and get good jobs back into communities that haven't seen them for decades and get local economies working again. In fact, it's the only thing to do. There are a million jobs on the road to net zero. We should be investing to bring them here so that young people in those coastal and industrial towns can power us through the next century like their parents and grandparents powered us through the last.
0: You didn't support leaving the EU, but you, you did take a compromise position after the referendum. And you sort of explain a lot of these, the reasons in the book. And now the leave-remain divide has softened a great deal. It was very stark then. You, your position seemed quite sort of quite lonely, you know, caught between, shot by both sides. Do you think it was simply too soon to, to sort of try and get past that, to sort of move on to the, to the, the healing of the divide?
1: it was too polarized and it became more polarized i put in more hours for the remain campaign than any other labour front venture apart from i think hilary ben who was the shadow foreign secretary at the time and i did it mainly in parts of the country uh, like wigan like Sunderland, like bolton where people had voted labour consistently for 100 years but we were on the different a different side of the argument them on the on the question of the european union And what I started to do during that campaign was to really listen to what people were saying to us. And the story that they told in the end was one of people who had watched a lot be lost from them, that sense of contribution and pride and purpose, the good jobs that bring with them the spending power that sustain the high street and the post offices and the pubs and the banks. I mean, young people don't have to get out to get on and whole communities and families don't have to be pulled apart. And they come to see the European Union and Westminster and in many cases, local councils and regional government as well as part of the problem. And when we got out the other side with fifty-two forty-eight, I thought the, the only mandate was for compromise. But the political system that we have didn't allow for that. One of the things that a group of MPs and I proposed during that time was citizens assemblies to try mm. to find mechanisms to bring people together to negotiate our way through that challenge. But instead, what we've got is a parliamentary system where we stand on opposite sides of the chamber and shout at each other over a rabble of noise, where we go onto TV shows where they're looking for the most extreme voices with a social media system that encourages people to move to extremes so that they can be heard. The political system that we have just isn't fit for purpose. It doesn't help us to negotiate. It pits us against each other rather than bringing us together. And um, at the moment, I
0: mean, I'm sure you, you saw the recent poll, you know, Brexit is more unpopular than ever. Um, the Labour leadership sort of seems be really like a third rail that, that can't be touched. And obviously many supporters, Romani sort of supporters, are, are sort of very disappointed about that. I understand the sort of pap- the electoral concerns of sort of bringing that up when we realise, you, you look back at, uh, at the sort of harm that did. When do you think it will be discussable again and legitimate for a Labour leader to go... This was um, this is not working.
1: So I'm going to push back on this a bit because on, he was out talking about this at the CBI just this week and made Brexit and the problems with the Brexit deal a central plank of his offer to business to work with them to sort that out and to reduce the trade barriers. And, and I was the shadow foreign secretary who made my first speech about Europe and said we are out of the European Union and that question is now settled. But... Our future lies with Europe, geography matters, and we're going to make it our first priority to rebuild that needlessly antagonistic relationship, not just with EU countries, but with the European Union itself. Mm. I don't think we've been shy at talking about it. I think what people are really, the people who criticise us, are really getting at is that we're not fighting to rejoin the European Union. And I make no apology for that, because I think this country has spent 10 years going around in circles, divided from one another, fighting battles of the past when we need to move forwards. And when I was Shadow Foreign Secretary, I didn't meet a single European leader during that time who was remotely interested in entertaining the prospect of Britain rejoining the European Union. They'd had years of it as well. We've got a Brexit deal that is a floor, not a ceiling of what can be achieved. And the task for the next generation of politicians is to strengthen and deepen that cooperation so that we can deal with things like energy security and Russian aggression and climate change, all massive problems coming down the track that we're not dealing with because we're simply not in the room at the moment.
0: After the 2019 election, I mean, partly because of Brexit, um, The consensus was—I remember this really clearly—that Labour just couldn't win in twenty twenty-four, possibly not even twenty twenty-nine. The so-called red wall was was gone for good. It was quite when you were running for leader, it was it was quite apocalyptic at that period. Now that assumption has been flipped on its head, and people are talking about what you know, what what would Labour have to do to sort of lose the next election? When did you first think that actually you could win?
1: I can tell you that on our side there isn't any any inch of complacency about the next general election. We're currently, I think, about 25 points ahead in the polls. Um, but, you know, we know we know things change very quickly in politics and we know most of all that people don't vote Labour unless they've got a really strong positive reason about the mm. country we can be. We've won three times in our 100-year history and each time it's been when we offered a compelling vision about the sort of country that we could be and a practical credible, realistic plan in order to achieve it. And we've spent a lot of time over the last few years and invested a huge amount of energy in showing that we are fit to govern again and making sure that that is true, tackling antisemitism, getting our finances in order, really being careful about how we spend public money and the promises that we make, because when we make promises, we intend to deliver them. But part of the thinking about writing this book and part of the reason that Keir asked me to do this job is because... We know that people need to feel a sense of hope about what's coming next, and a sense of excitement about it as well. So mm. when we say that we'll invest 28 million a year every year in um, in creating clean energy jobs and rebuild this country from the ground up, that's that's the sort of thing that I think people need to hear more of from us. We're very very acutely aware of that. Well,
0: that's what that struck me because I, I feel like there was you know there's there's two jobs to to be done, and one was quite cautious and to, to show that Labour could be trusted and that job has been done. And then there's the sort of, well, what's the what's the radical offer that gets people excited? And I suppose that's where people are sometimes a bit more divided on whether whether Labour's doing that. Uh, I felt sort of similarly when I read Ed Miliband's book, that Labour has to have these voices pushing the really big ideas so that it doesn't just become the the managerial side, that you have to have that radical vision as well.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's right. So there are, at moments when things are this bleak, it's tempting at a time like this to retreat and to say, there's very little that can be done. We can only tinker, we can only ameliorate some mm. of the worst things that are around. But if you look back at our 100 year history, we've never done that we were propelled to power after the Second World War, that the Attlee government to to date is still the government in British history that's built more council houses than any other because we had people who'd gone off to fight in the war who weren't prepared to return to the same squalid conditions that they'd had to endure before. And we did it again in the 60s and 70s with the Wilson governments and responding to this settlement that for women, immigrants, working-class kids, they had... Far more ambition than the opportunities were on offer, and we brought in comprehensive education and the Equal Pay Act and the Race Relations Act, and we did it again in 1997. People often miss this, but you'd had the the decay and the decline of Thatcherism, and of course, rebuilding healthcare system was a major priority for us. But there's a reason why Tony Blair said education, 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 and that's because we had to equip our young people to compete in the global economy it, it would have been tempting to retreat at that point and say look there's very little that we can do and i think we're in a similar moment now where change isn't just possible but it's actually inevitable because people won't put up with the system that we've got anymore
0: yeah well that's where what i end on is that there is a, a sort of fear in the book a very legitimate one i think that if some of these problems aren't fixed soon then faith in democracy itself will dwindle now, obviously, there's moral arguments for what you want to do. There's economic arguments, there's electoral arguments. Do you think the spectre of right-wing populism is perhaps the most powerful political argument that actually if you, if you don't fix, if somebody does not fix these things fairly soon, then things can get very dark?
1: I think that is fundamentally right. And I still now don't think that most politicians understand how close the whole liberal democratic system came to collapse during particularly the brexit years in a representative democracy when people don't feel that they're represented the system just can't survive and there's a a quote in the book from harry pitts who writes that there are those on left and right of politics who luxuriate in the flames licking at the side of liberal democracy Hmm. i think that is pretty much where we are and there are people who are trying to provoke the system to collapse. And unless we start to deliver real change, I, I don't think that people will will keep faith with a system that isn't doing it. It's been 14 years since the global financial crash, and yet very little new has emerged in its place. And instead, it's been left to people in communities up and down the country to try to protect and defend and build the things that most matter. We've got to do things differently. That's the argument in the book. I think that's the argument that people are making in every part of the country. Mm. I think change will come. We should be the ones to deliver it and we're determined that that's what we're going to do.
0: Thanks for talking to me, Lisa and Andy. Thank you. All In, How We Build a Country That Works is published by Harper North. And thanks to you for listening. A new episode of The Bunker is available every day of the week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word. You can tell a friend, share it on social media or review us on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon where you'll get episodes early without ads and with bonus goodies. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerberton. Assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producers, Jacob Jarvis. Group editors, Andrew Harrison. And our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.